I want to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Did you have a crush on me? No. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is ceasing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. We went out on a search for the finest martinis. It may not be what the tourists come for. Excitement casino. The best of everything here. But in its heyday, Las Vegas was one of the last spots where the American dream still seemed widely possible. The economy was so bad back home and the money was so good out here. You want to do better for your family so you buy a bigger house. Now, Las Vegas is a foreclosure capital where working people wagered and lost. You can't have more wet taste on a beer budget. Maybe I'm stupid, but look at how many other people are so stupid. I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, Foreclosure City from American Radio Works. First, this news. This is Stephen Smith in Las Vegas, Nevada, one of the most visited cities on the planet. And many people start their visit here at McCarran International Airport. Now, Las Vegas is not a subtle place, so even before you get to the Strip, in fact, as soon as you step off the plane into the airport, you come face to face with something that defines this city. Actually, I'm not talking about slot machines, though you will find rows of them on your way to the luggage carousel. I'm talking about something else, or someone else. We're going. Belton. Venetian. Venetian, all right. Hi there, my name is Stephen Smith. Can you tell me who you are? My name is Jim Beltran. And uh, what do you do for a living? Now I'm a bus driver, shuttling people back and forth from the airport to the different hotels. Jim Beltran is a shuttle bus driver, one of the thousands of folks in Las Vegas, a service industry that make the city run. And right now he's driving down to the Strip, where all the big casinos are. Jim is also one of the millions of Americans in danger of losing a home to foreclosure. And he says so are most of his co-workers. The ones that own homes, not renting, uh, everyone. <laughs> you know, sometimes I don't know whether to blame myself. Maybe I'm stupid. But look at how many other people are so stupid. In fact, just about anybody who lives in Las Vegas has a personal story of foreclosure or near foreclosure. And if they don't, they know someone who does. Nevada's had the highest rate of foreclosure in this country for the last two years. Uh, 454 on the radio, please. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Foreclosure City. I'm Stephen Smith. And over the next hour, we will visit Foreclosure City, a.k.a. Las Vegas. Something like 10% of the houses in Las Vegas are either in foreclosure or close. That's compared to about 1% of homes nationwide. So it's a huge problem in Las Vegas. Like 67,000 homes foreclosed on last year alone. And just ahead of us there to your left, you can see the Welcome to Las Vegas sign. Ah, uh, yeah, the famous Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas. Should it maybe read Welcome to uh, the unofficial foreclosure capital of the U.S.? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. But in many ways, that's what Las Vegas has become. In fact, this year, Las Vegas pushed out Detroit for the distinction of the emptiest city in America. If, if it doesn't work out for me, I'll be one of them leaving, too. Now, you've undoubtedly heard a lot about foreclosures lately because, after all, the subprime mortgage crisis is at the root of the national recession. But Vegas was supposed to be recession-proof. It was supposed to be a new model for economic growth in America, a service economy. For the past 20 years, the industrial U.S. was rusting away and losing work to overseas factories. But Las Vegas boomed. It epitomized America's appetite for risk and luxury. And the city couldn't build new homes or fill new jobs fast enough. This is the Venetian. Venetian. A lot of people buying houses in Las Vegas, if they lived in other parts of the country, would be considered the working poor, or at least pretty close. There were people like Jim who came to this gleaming city in the desert for a new start at success. Jim is 76. 77, August 24th. He has a heart condition. And the only reason why I still drive and pull myself up in the morning is if they're to ask me, do you have a job, I'm able to say yes. The they Jim is talking about is his mortgage company, Countrywide. Countrywide's now infamous for its central role in the subprime drama. Jim's interest rate is about to balloon, and he won't be able to afford his monthly mortgage payment soon. So before that happens, he's hoping to get Countrywide to modify his loan, to reduce the payments. But if he doesn't have a job, something to show that at least he's trying to make his mortgage, he's afraid he'll be denied. 
That's why he keeps driving tourists around on this shuttle bus. Be careful getting out, please. The foreclosure crisis in Las Vegas raises hard questions about that classic American dream of buying a home and getting ahead, about what is a prudent investment and what's a reckless gamble. Here on the bus with me is producer Chrissy Clark, who has been reporting on this story for more than a year. And Chrissy, you told me that I had to meet Jim Beltran, the bus driver. How, how did you meet him? Jim and I met at a foreclosure workshop, actually. These workshops that nonprofit groups put on in Las Vegas a few times a week, and they're packed, almost all of them, because so many people are trying to avoid foreclosure. They want advice. And so the one I went to probably had 60 people crammed into a little classroom. And the teacher was trying to be positive and was trying to remind people that even if they did lose their homes, they could always start over. They could always build back up their credit and buy another house someday. And I heard this voice at the back of the room say, not if you're my age, you can't. Hey there. That voice Hi. belonged to Jim Beltran. After we first met last winter, he invited me to come over to his house to meet his wife yes, Ruth Marie, and their cat. That's Felix. Felix. Jim and Ruth Marie live in a subdivision in a small three-bedroom house with high ceilings and lots of windows. And it's such a joy to wake up in the morning and come into a nice, bright living room. I never get used to it. It doesn't get boring. Mementos from their lives cover every surface. Pictures of their kids and grandkids on the walls, dream catchers over their beds. They don't help my dreams that much. Jim and Ruth Marie bought this house 10 years ago. Wasn't even built yet. We watched it being built, and we sold the trailer. They'd moved here from Alaska in 1988 after bouncing through a series of jobs. Jim had been a cop, worked for the state government, labored on the Alaskan oil pipeline, and then started a janitorial service that failed when Alaska hit a recession. So Jim and Ruth Marie left in pretty bad shape financially. Honey, what were we eating? Mm-hmm. Top ramen and hot dogs. Top ramen and hot dogs and renting apartments. So let's go start things new someplace else. And we were getting not tired of Alaska, but by that time we were getting kind of old. It was getting cold up there. Las Vegas seemed like the perfect place to go. It was an up-and-coming city with a booming service industry. New casinos were opening all the time, and there were jobs for the picking. Housing was still pretty cheap. So Jim and his wife saved money, bought their trailer, and then after a few years, traded up for a house in a new subdivision and watched their property value soar. By 2006, it was rising $10,000 every few months. Mortgage brokers started calling them and sending them letters asking if they wanted to refinance their house, take out a line of equity, and capitalize on the real estate boom. Nowadays, people look back, wag their fingers, and call this using your house like an ATM. But back then, everybody was doing it. Jim says it seemed like a wise bet. I mean, everything they told us sounded so good, you know. The payments, we we could afford them. It just sounded good. So they refinanced, used the money to pay off their cars, their credit card bills, do some landscaping. They got an adjustable rate mortgage. Jim wasn't exactly sure what that meant until he started getting letters recently, saying his monthly payments were about to go from $1,700 to $2,000. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. If the adjustable kicks in, I'll be another candidate for foreclosure. This town is a lonely town. Of course, there's really no such thing as foreclosure city. But after spending so much time in Las Vegas over the last year, working on this documentary, it's sometimes what I found myself calling this place. Foreclosure City is kind of the bizarro world to the Sin City that we all know about. For example, if the quintessential sound in Sin City is that jingling sound that slot machines make when you hit the jackpot, this is the sound of Foreclosure City. You hear this sound softly echoing through neighborhoods all over town. An occasional, high-pitched beep. At first, I didn't know what all the beeping was. Then I realized it's the sound of smoke detectors whose batteries are almost dead. There are so many abandoned houses in Foreclosure City, there's no one to replace all the batteries and make the beeping stop. Foreclosure City also has a certain scent. Smell it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If Sin City smells like a mixture of Axe cologne and exhaust from all the cars clogging up the strip, a different smell clings to the air in Foreclosure City. 
it's, it's just a very distinctive, like, algae, you know? One part algae, one part rotting, waterlogged leaves, and occasionally a drowned animal. Birds, dogs, cats, snake. Because a lot of the homes in Las Vegas have swimming pools, and now that so many homes have been abandoned to foreclosure, no one is there to keep up the pools. The chemicals evaporate, and you've got thousands of perfect little breeding grounds for mosquitoes, which is where Rob Cole comes in. He's an environmental health specialist with Clark County, where Las Vegas is located. People are worried about West Nile virus here, since it's carried by mosquitoes. So the county sends out Rob with a big bucket of tiny silver fish that eat mosquitoes. It's pretty simple. I'm just going to pour the fish in slowly, and then you'll see them. They'll sit there for a minute, then they'll start to swim away. More things living in that pool than the house. A lot more. Three years ago, a guy like Rob would treat maybe a few rotting pools a month, mostly cases where the owner was out of town and the neighbors started to smell something. But now there are so many foreclosures in Las Vegas, he can treat more than 20 pools in a day. I get like 20 reminders a day of how not to buy a home and how to save money first. That's the main thing. I'm like, when I buy a home, I'm going to make sure I have the finances. Through the back windows of this house with the pool, you can see into the dining room. It's empty, but there's something scrawled on the wall in black spray paint. It says, after 15 years here, thanks. Foreclosure City leaves certain images burned into your eyes. If Sin City is covered with billboards of sequined magicians and girls in thongs, Foreclosure City's billboards have pictures of scruffy dogs looking for new homes. This is Banshee. She was a foreclosure dog, huh, pumpkin? Animal shelters in Foreclosure City are beyond capacity these days. DJ Cogswell works at the SPCA here. He's wearing a T-shirt that says, The Best Little Cat House in Nevada. He says when people lose their houses to foreclosure, a lot of them leave their cats and dogs behind. Lately we've been seeing like realtors and contractors come in and say, oh, we're working on this property, or we went in there and we found this animal. Welcome to Foreclosure City, the shadow city of Las Vegas. It's a distressing place. What makes it all the more distressing is how different it is from what was happening here until just recently. Not the what happens here stays here stuff of tourism campaigns, but stories of everyday people bettering their lives. Stories that would make Horatio Alger proud, involving not the people who play on the strip, but those who cater to them. The parking valet who made so much money in tips he bought his own Ferrari with cash. The cocktail waitress who saved enough money to buy her own house. Folks rising from starting out on the gaming floor to being in the executive offices. Bill Anderson is the chief economist for the Nevada Department of Employment. Folks starting with a small home building operation and seeing that balloon as the economy rose. For the last two decades, Bill's office has been keeping track of the jobs people came for when they flooded into Las Vegas. Every month, four to 5,000 new residents would come from across the country and around the world. Job growth was four times the national average. Las Vegas boasted one of the highest per capita incomes for people without college degrees. It was one of the last places the American dream still seemed possible, doing better than your parents, passing something on to your kids. Except in Las Vegas, it could happen in one generation. It was the American dream on steroids, bigger and faster. People called it the Las Vegas dream. If you've been willing to work hard, uh, Nevada was the place to be. For two decades running, we were the fastest growing state in the nation because uh, folks in search of economic opportunity uh, came to Nevada. I come from uh, the state of Michigan, which is going through some terrible struggles right now. There are a lot of people that have left the Rust Belt to come to Nevada. In fact, many economists saw Las Vegas as the new Detroit a city with a powerful union presence where workers could find good, well-paying jobs and a foothold in the middle class. Instead of building cars or machinery, they built something less tangible, a fantasy of luxury served up for tourists. By far, our biggest economic engine is on the leisure and hospitality side. So we thrived on uh, providing services as opposed to providing goods. And that proved to be very successful for us. It was a microcosm of a larger trend going on in the country. More and more places that were losing manufacturing jobs overseas turned to the service economy for new hope. And when it came to service, Las Vegas was on the cutting edge. 
The city was hailed as a new economic model for the 21st century. The economy was so bad back home and the money was so good out here. Debbie Dusso came to Las Vegas from an old industrial town in Rhode Island in 1990. She was just passing through, visiting a friend, but she stayed. I was here a couple of days and I already had a job and I was working and I couldn't leave. Debbie didn't finish college, so her job options were a little limited. In Rhode Island, she'd worked at the airport for a while, then waited tables. The jobs didn't pay well, and frankly, they were boring. In Las Vegas, she got a job at a shiny green casino with lions, real lions, in a glass cage near the lobby. She's a banquet server at the MGM Grand. Sometimes, when a big convention comes through town, she works 16-hour days. She loves it. Well, I work with people from everywhere. I mean, I have friends now from Switzerland, from South Africa, from Ethiopia, from Thailand, from Singapore. And there's an air of glamour to it. When she serves food at celebrity fundraisers, she meets famous people in between the platters of lettuce wraps and chicken Vesuvio. Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, my favorite person in the whole wide world, Robin Williams. Danced with him, actually. He would come back and all the servers would be sitting in the back and he would come back and he would start cracking jokes and he would do 20 minutes stand up right there with just the servers. Times were good when she got the job. Thanks to the culinary union she belonged to, she had a pension, free health care. She made several times what a banquet server would earn in most parts of the country. And as she gained seniority and more shifts, her income kept growing. By 2005, she was making almost $80,000 a year. Her landlord wanted to sell the house she was renting, and one day she thought, maybe I can buy it. The way prices kept shooting up, she was afraid if she didn't buy soon, she'd miss her chance. And I'm like, well, let the chips fall where they lie. We'll see if I get a loan. You know, I put everything out there, and this is what I have, and this is what I make, and I don't own any bills. Can you do it? She got a loan, with a catch. She didn't qualify for a traditional loan big enough to buy the house she wanted. It cost $320,000. But she could get one of those subprime loans we hear so much about now. It had more flexible terms. Debbie put no money down, and for the first two years, she paid only interest on the loan, none of the principal. Debbie says her mortgage broker assured her that after that, when her payments started to increase, she could just refinance. The way things were going back then, it was a good bet the value of her house would have increased too, not to mention her income. It seemed like a smart gamble. And I'm like, okay, well then, if you think I can do it, then I guess I can. I wasn't really ready to buy a house, but I figured if I could get the loan, then obviously they thought I was ready for it. These were the sorts of deals that, a few years ago, were happening all over Las Vegas and many parts of the country where subprime mortgages were common. When people talk about them now, they're sometimes used as quiet indictments of foolishness and greed. As in, how could a banquet server think she could afford to buy a $320,000 house? But four years ago, when Debbie the banquet server did buy her $320,000 house, she was a poster child for the Las Vegas dream. The dream that, with hard work, optimism, and some calculated risk, even a banquet server could afford to buy her own house. A nice one. This is home. This is our backyard, and there's the park that we hang out in, where Marley and I go for our little walks. Debbie has a black lab named Marley, like Bob Marley, and two cats, Rasta and Desi. Just a few weeks ago, we were over here in the path here walking, Marley and I, and some lady and her uh, husband or boyfriend, I don't know, and their dog come walking through with Susan Anton and her dog Joe. Marley liked Joe. Marley kept trying to hump him. I'm like, oh, stop. Debbie's 49 and single. She's got long, curly black hair. She's wearing jeans and a sweatshirt. And I'm an Elvis nut. Pictures of Elvis line the staircase in between pictures of her nieces and nephews. Debbie's house is a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath on a short cul-de-sac. From the outside, her place looks like every other one on the street. White stucco, red tile roof. But inside, Debbie's put her imprint on every room. The bathroom has a zebra theme, a dog motif in the guest room. Debbie says the home improvement shows on cable TV inspire her. This is our room, my room. I um, I painted it all satin finish, and then I got a high gloss finish of the same paint and did the stripes. Measured it all out and did the stripes. And that's my roommate's room. Debbie shares her house with a roommate, an older guy that she works with. She'd prefer to have the place to herself, but she needs his rent money to make her mortgage. Her income has dropped by half since last year. 
Fewer conventions come through town, thanks to the recession, so Debbie's lost a lot of shifts. And once the interest rate adjusted on her loan, her monthly payments jumped from just over $1,500 to more than $2,100. Meanwhile, the value of her home is sinking. She owes the bank far more than the house is worth now, so she can't refinance. I tell myself every day, why don't I just walk away from this one? I'll screw up my credit, but I'll be able, I'll rent a place, and in two years, buy a house probably bigger than this one, and it'll cost me less money. I say that, I tell myself that every day. But then I look at it, and I look around at what I got and go, I don't want it. I want this one. I want to stay here. This is home. To stay in her home, Debbie's been willing to try all sorts of things. Besides the roommate, she approached her bank about a loan modification last year, but they turned her down. They said she was still current on her payments, so she didn't need help yet. That's been a common complaint among homeowners. Often, banks won't negotiate until homeowners actually stop making their monthly payments and ruin their credit. When I called Debbie's mortgage company to ask about this, they declined to comment. But Debbie kept looking for ways to save her house. She got something in the mail from a company saying they could get a loan modification for her. She paid them $2,500, got a few follow-up calls from an employee, and then never heard from him again. Scams like these are common in Nevada right now. And that's the frustrating part is not knowing who to trust or who to talk to. And I want someone to just come up and say, look, this is what I would do if I was in your shoes. (gasps) Just then, the phone rings. Debbie'd forgotten about the plumber she'd called to look at her leaky toilet. He's outside, and she takes him upstairs to see what's wrong. Debbie's dog, Marley, thumps his tail against the cabinets and nuzzles the guy as he works. Whoever did this tile work set your toilet on there, and they didn't do it properly. If you do it right, we're going to have to raise the flange up with a repair kit. Uh Uh-huh. What's the cost of that? That is going to be... 410. Because I don't have the money right now. I don't have the $400 to, no. to do it. I'm not presently working, so till next week. Your house being foreclosed? N- not yet. <laughs> oh, no. Just when Debbie needs all the money she has to keep her house, the house keeps needing more money. She asks the plumber if there's some sort of quick fix he can do until she has the funds to pay for all the work. He stares at her and says nothing. Then he says he'll see what he can do and charges her 20 bucks. She tips him another 20 as thanks. When he's gone, I have a question for Debbie. Doesn't she ever wish she could go back to renting and let a landlord deal with this kind of stuff? She looks out the window at her backyard and says no. Being here, being single, being on my own, I turned around and I bought my own house. I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, it's a real big deal. The thought of losing it, really... It's kind of like a slap in the face. My heart is here. I don't know what holds me to it. This is home. This is where I'm supposed to be. Now Debbie's paid another company another few thousand dollars to try to get a loan modification. In the meantime, she's stopped making her mortgage payments. It's a gamble that might ruin her credit and lead to foreclosure. But it might be a way to stay here. Jim Jim Beltran, the shuttle bus driver we met at the beginning of this story, is early for his appointment at Consumer Credit Counseling Services of Southern Nevada. And he and his wife, Ruth Marie, are both wearing jade pendants around their necks in the shape of monkeys eating peaches. Ruth Marie says they represent long life and riches. Jim and Ruth Marie are here to see Kendra Sellers. She has red hair and a warm smile and a very tired look to her eyes. She's a housing counselor with the nonprofit, and she meets with 10 clients a day, an hour at a time, back to back. Most of them come for the same reason Jim and Ruth Marie have. They want to avoid foreclosure, and they want her to help. What I'm going to do is put in all of your information. Jim explains the situation to Kendra. He and his wife are in their 70s. She's retired. He works part-time as a shuttle bus driver. They refinanced their house two years ago, at the peak of the real estate bubble, to pay bills, do some landscaping, buy a few things. The loan they got had an adjustable rate, and the monthly payments are about to go up $300. Jim shows her the loan papers. Oh my gosh, it's going up 2%. 
Jim says work is slow and his income has dropped. So even at his current interest rate, he has to pull $500 a month out of his savings just to keep up with his mortgage. But you don't want to have to keep dipping into your savings every month because sooner or later that's going to give out. Jim nods. Kendra asks him a series of questions about his income and expenses and plugs his answers into a computer program. Okay. So what we've got here is... Um, 514. Negative. Yeah. So Kendra points out what they already know. He's spending more than he's making. She looks at the budget and makes a few suggestions. Maybe they could get rid of their cell phone, not go out to eat as much. It's a free world. You can spend your money however you want. However, while we're at it, people have been known to live without cable TV. So it's a matter of priorities. Then she leans forward. Another thing I want to I want to bring up to you. Mm-hmm. 68% of your income is being paid for your mortgage payment. That's really, really high. That's about twice as high as it should be. It should be around 30 to 35%. Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of your income is going to this house. Okay. If we were going to rent, I really wouldn't have to work or anything. Oh, I know all that. Okay. Yeah. But then again... I'm here to tell you all your options. <laughs> the advice to give up the house is not what Jim came to hear. They talk about Jim's efforts to get his bank to modify his home loan. It's in the review process right now, and Kendra tells him to call every day to check on it. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Anyhow, thank you so much. You're welcome. Kendra wishes them luck and walks them out. Then she comes back to her office, sits down, and takes a deep breath. Probably two-thirds of the people I see really should let their houses go. They really should, but they don't want to. That's their dream house, and they want to stay in it. Kendra holds mortgage lenders largely to blame for getting folks into houses they couldn't afford. But I don't think that the borrowers can be totally absolved of all this either because they were taking a gamble on this house. They thought that the price would go up. Kendra also points her finger in one more direction, the American dream itself and the way it played out in Las Vegas. The American way is to have a house. I mean, that's what everyone's dream is. And I know that's why a lot of people move here. Homes were more affordable than they were in other parts of the country. People thought at the time that that was their last opportunity to get a house, that they would keep on rising, and they were going to jump in there and get that house and, and live the dream. But Kendra says maybe that wasn't the right dream for everyone. St. Jude, Thank you for everything you've done for me and my family. Foreclosure City is filled with whispered prayers. Jim Beltran says this is his. Um, I have a problem now. Is <clears throat> I got my mortgage. I'd like to get that straightened out. But the main thing is, you know, you say, not my will, but thine be done. Or not my will, but God's be done. And uh, please pray for me. I do it on my way to work. He and his wife, Ruth Marie, both do it. They pray to their patron saint. St. Jude. Patron saint of difficult things. And we, impossible. Oh, you should see the things he has done for us. When Jim and Ruth Marie got in trouble years ago with the IRS for not paying taxes, he credits St. Jude for helping him find a bank that would loan money to him to start paying off his debts. After he lost a job and was eating nothing but top ramen and hot dogs, he won $19,000 at Kino. He thanks St. Jude for that. And you're not praying for money, you're just You're praying for help. help. (laughs) Jim's home from a frustrating day at work. The Las Vegas airport was so dead today, he only did one shuttle run and made $40. It's been like that for months now. But Jim doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to show me some things around the house. He takes some framed photos off a table. This is my father. When he came over from uh, the Philippines, uh, he was uh, in his uh, early 20s. He looks down at the black and white picture of a young man with dark hair, smiling, sitting on a front stoop. He came from the Philippines to become an engineer, could never get the type of jobs commensurate with his education. Retired, basically a good word for it, being maintenance man, he was a janitor. But, Jim says, his parents worked hard, saved money, took some financial risks that paid off, and bought their own home. They lived the American dream. Now, let me show you something. Jim opens the door into his garage. See that car there? Behind a stack of boxes, an old car is sitting on blocks. 
It was Jim's dad's. Jim inherited it when he died. That's worth uh, 20000 now. It's a 1948 Dodge. And that's how I look at this house. I want to pass on what I have to my kids. That night, while Jim and Ruth Marie are watching TV, the guy who lives across the street comes over for a visit. His name is Steve. He asks me not to use his last name. He's embarrassed. He's been out of work for more than a year. He and his wife and kids are struggling to keep their house, too. Now and then, Steve drops by his neighbors to ask for help with a utility bill. We are looking at uh, welfare right now to see if we qualify for um, food stamps to make it easier. Borrowing money from our neighbors and not being able to pay it back. (laughs) Steve looks at Jim, and Jim shrugs. So, yeah, it's rough. Ruth Marie hands them both some lemonade. Until recently, Steve was a mortgage broker. He sold home loans to people like Jim and Ruth Marie. I knew nothing about the loan business. I was in construction my whole life, growing up with my dad. And I walked into my friend's office, he was a broker, in my construction clothes, and I said, give me a job. I want to change, you know, I want to do this. He was making lots of money. He was making about $40,000 a month. And I couldn't believe that this guy that I knew that used to do construction was now making this kind of money. I said, well, you know, why can't I make this kind of money? He said, you can. For two weeks, I'll give you a crash course, and then after that, it's sink or swim. So I think that's exactly what he did. And I couldn't believe how easy it was. Steve made $100,000 his first year. He insists he never gave a loan to someone he didn't think could afford one. That's just what I, that's the way, the way I was taught. Um, I worked with some good people, and, and they were honest. And uh, there were people in our office that were sharks, and that would... And, They really made a lot of money, but they probably made a lot of uh, people unhappy. And Steve is in the same boat as a lot of those unhappy people, now that his mortgage business has gone belly up. I made a crap load of money really fast. Well, more money than I, not a crap load of money, but more money than I was used to making. And like a fool, um, I upgraded like people do. I spent money. I if you want to, you know, do better for your family, so you buy a bigger house, or you buy a new car, or you do that, you know, so I bought a new house, I bought a couple cars, and everything was fine for a couple of years. And when things started to get tight, I kept thinking it was going to get better, it's going to get better, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Steve is trying to find another job now, doing what he used to do, construction. But with the collapsing housing market, the construction business has ground to a halt, too. His wife got a job at Trader Joe's, but it doesn't pay very much. They're more than eight months behind on their mortgage. He says his family has cut back in every way they can think of. They give themselves one night of fun a week, where they rent a video and make popcorn. That's it. I go across the street, and Steve shows me his house. While we're standing in his garage, I ask him what he hopes other people might learn from his experience. I hope people learn how to how to use their money properly, how to save their freaking money, because... When you have none and you're forced to swallow your pride and then ask, for, you know, if you to borrow or you're selling stuff that you would never sell or... He looks off into the distance for a sec. I mean, I play guitar, that's my... Playing guitar is like my life and I have pawned or sold, pawned or sold all of my equipment, all of my guitars except for one. I have one left and I, I, I won't get rid of it, I hope, but... Before I leave, I ask Steve to play me some of his music. He thinks about it, almost agrees to, and then says no. He's out of practice. And one of his guitar strings is broken anyway. But a few weeks later, he sends me this recording he made of his music. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to Foreclosure City. Coming up... Why at this point in your life, why are you buying a house? Why do you want to become a homeowner? To learn more about the foreclosure crisis in Las Vegas and about what help there is for people caught up in the problem, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can download this and other American Radio Works programs and subscribe to our podcast. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Foreclosure City is supported by the Northwest Area Foundation Fund of the Minneapolis Foundation. 
Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Foreclosure City. I'm Stephen Smith, and driving the car here in Las Vegas is producer Chrissy Clark. Yes, and I am going to pull over right here. So we've just pulled up to a gated subdivision just outside Las Vegas. This is called San Nicolo, and it's one of the newest suburbs in Las Vegas. It's also one of the most foreclosed. We're in Las Vegas because it's kind of become the unofficial capital for the country's foreclosure crisis. It's had one of the nation's highest rates of foreclosure for the last two years, and along with that, one of the highest rates of unemployment. But until recently, Las Vegas was actually known for a very different set of distinctions. It was the fastest growing city in the country, four times the economic growth of anywhere else in America. It had lots of jobs and relatively cheap housing, so people were flooding here from all over the U.S. Las Vegas seemed like one of the few places left where a poor or working class family could own its own home and pass that wealth along to their children. Right, and so far in this program, we've been talking about two things. People who bought more house than they could afford, and people who took a bunch of equity out of their house and used it, as the saying goes, like an ATM machine. But here in San Nicolo, there are other kinds of stories, including people who felt they did everything right. People like Karen Lewis, a white-collar professional with a steady job and a degree in accounting. Hello? Hi, is this Karen? Yeah. Hi, it's Chrissy. The first time I visit Karen in March of last year, I have to dial her up at this call box. Okay, I'll press you in. Hang on. And wait to be let inside the wrought iron gate. Access granted. Please enter. This gate means a lot to Karen and the neighborhood. It helped give the new Spanish-style homes here a sense of security and distance from the problems of the outside world. And a few years ago, price tags of a half million dollars. And the gates are swinging open. At least, that's how the gate was supposed to work. When I meet Karen, she's relieved that the gate is even opening. She says one night in the summer of 2007, that became the exception, not the rule. I came home one night, the, the gate was broken. Some kids had rammed through the gate to get to a raging party next door to Karen's house. They were racing up and down the block in jacked up trucks. There were all these cars lined up and down the street. There were tons of beer cans, you know, music, kids wandering up and down. We called security, they broke the party up. But I thought, you know, I've paid how much money for this house, and I feel like I'm living in a college town. Around the same time, tow trucks also started bashing through the gate. They were coming in to repossess residents' cars. And someone else had broken into the neighborhood and slashed some tires, stolen some purses. It's definitely not the family neighborhood that I expected. Karen's family moved to San Nicolo three years ago. They'd sold a house in San Diego for $200,000 more than they paid. They were like many of the new residents who poured into Las Vegas back then. They were equity refugees, in search of a place where the money they made off the real estate boom in California would go farther. They bought a five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath, hacienda-style house with high ceilings, granite countertops, and a dramatic view of the mountains. Sort of my dream house, in a way, more so than um, what we had been able to afford in California. It cost them $435,000. They put down the 200000 they made on their San Diego house and were left with a mortgage they could easily manage. They both had good jobs. She's a business consultant. He's a chemical engineer. Karen says she had a certain version of success in mind here, one that involved living next to other young professional families with nice cars and well-tended yards. Given the price range of the house, you were going to have people that that if they're going to spend that kind of money, there's going to be a pride of ownership. I like the fact that there's a golf course and a private country club in the neighborhood. I'm not a member, but it's nice being associated with a bit of exclusivity. <laughs> That's not what San Nicolo is associated with now. To understand what happened to this neighborhood, you need to know a bit about housing speculation, a popular pastime during the Las Vegas boom. When Karen's family was buying their house, so were small-time speculators, two and three houses at a time. The places were selling like hotcakes, or another substance, as Butch Cody puts it. He's Karen's neighbor. Wow, it's like, who, who needs to be a drug dealer when you can buy real estate in Las Vegas? Not that I sell drugs. Actually, Butch is a hairdresser. He bought three houses in the neighborhood with adjustable-rate mortgages and planned to flip them for a quick profit. 
That was back when real estate prices seemed like they could go nowhere but up and loans were easy to get without down payments or proof of income. Now that his monthly rates have increased, Butch can't afford his houses anymore. He stopped paying the mortgage on the one he lives in in January. He guesses the bank will get around to seizing it in the next few months. There's an empty. It might still be empty. Nobody's in there. Oh, really? Karen Lewis and her four-year-old son, Cooper, walk around their neighborhood on a windy spring day. 24 of the 214 homes in San Nicolo are in foreclosure. That's about 11%. That's much higher than the national average, which is under two. But it's places like San Nicolo, where so many people defaulted on their mortgages all at once, that are at the root of the global financial meltdown. When banks wound up with all these bad loans on their hands, they started seizing up on credit and lending, and things started to spiral down from there. Each empty house in San Nicolo has played a tiny role in that larger economic drama. It's probably a foreclosure, but I'm not sure. If you see the lawn's dead. A dead lawn is a telltale sign of a soon-to-be foreclosed house. Cooper's proud that he's found one. I found one. I found one. Do you know what foreclosure means? Not living in a house. Do you have friends at school who have foreclosures? Some friends. I didn't realize he realized. You knew that? Oh, God. But it's not just foreclosures that are affecting Karen's neighborhood. With the sagging market, speculators who've avoided foreclosures still can't sell their houses like they'd planned. So they're renting them out instead. Houses designed for single families are being rented to groups of college kids, like the ones who broke the gate, or multiple families at a time. On the corner, we believe that it's a halfway house. There are about six cars. They um, don't say hi. Later, I go to the house that Karen thinks is a halfway house. Hi, I'm Chrissy. I'm a reporter. Oh, sorry. An older woman and a little girl crack open the door. Oh, sorry about that. Everybody work in the nighttime. Oh, where do they work? Where do they work? They, they are taxi drivers. They're oh, okay. graveyard. The woman's name is Georgina Simmons, and the girl is her granddaughter, Topaz. They tell me they started renting this house in 2007, right when the real estate bubble burst in Las Vegas. Yeah, because we have more more rooms here, and we are more together. And how we are going to buy the house. Probably. You're going to buy the house? Yeah, we're going to buy the house. Yeah, we really like the neighbor. How many uh, How many people live here? Nine. No. Yes. Cállate. But I've said Seven. Okay. Seven. Seven. <laughs> no, nine. The gate around San Nicolo was supposed to keep out this sort of stuff. Houses crammed with people, renters without much money. Karen Lewis moved here because it was exclusive. And frankly, these were the sorts of situations she wanted to exclude. But she says she's realizing, slowly, that the changes to her neighborhood haven't been all bad. There are some biases that I had that I didn't realize. You sort of stereotype people like the neighbor next to me. They, they have a detailing business, so they would actually have their customers come to their house, and they would clean the cars and they would have music playing, and they'd be sitting out in their um, lawn chairs, drinking beer and talking to their friends in the middle of you know a Saturday afternoon. I didn't expect to have that kind of traffic in my street, but they're awesome neighbors. They're the ones that slow down when they see a kid. And Karen says they probably came here for the same reason she did, to live their dreams. This town. That looks like new grass. Looks like they're trees. Things aren't dead. This winter in late February, I visit Karen Lewis again, and we go for another walk through her neighborhood. Her house has depreciated almost $200,000 now, and she owes more on it than it's worth. Still, she's trying to be positive. Sure, there are even more foreclosures on her street, but people are buying some of them now, too. We pass a house with a sign that says bank owned in the window. All the lights are on. The front door is wide open. There are two cars parked in the driveway. You know, this seems feels like a realtor situation right now. Karen's eyes light up. She heads to the door. A realtor is showing the place to a young couple, potential new neighbors. And notice the beep of the smoke alarm with the dead batteries in the background. We're in foreclosure city after all. Karen introduces herself. I live in 3483. So I live on the street with all these wonderful foreclosures. When did you buy? 
I bought in almost three years ago. It's a buyer's market, and this would be the couple's first house. They've looked at 20 this weekend. The wife checks out the upstairs closets. The husband wants to know how good a deal this place really is. It's okay. I don't. I have no shame. I paid four hundred thirty-five thousand. If this is two forty, it's a steal. Sorry. Karen is happy to talk the place up. Four-year-old son. This is a great neighborhood. I just don't like the foreclosures. That's why. I'm, I mean, I have a vested interest. You know, I need you guys to move in and help the houses appreciate back to what the potential is going to be. So. Karen offers to let the couple see her house for comparison, but they politely decline. They look a little overwhelmed by her enthusiasm. She wishes them luck. On our way back to Karen's house, she worries whether she and the neighborhood have made a good impression on the couple. I don't know. They're probably like the rest of us, just sort of waiting it out to see what happens. You know, is it going to turn into what we would hope and what the potential seems to be, or is it just a dream, you know? But when Karen gets home, she has a confession to make. As much as she wants people to move into her neighborhood, she's thinking of moving out. She and her husband recently got a divorce, so she's got to pay the mortgage by herself now. She's having trouble finding work as a business consultant in Las Vegas. And even though she can still make her house payments so far, she catches herself playing out worst-case scenarios in her head late at night and wondering what happened. I wasn't a speculator. or I hadn't reached for a house that I couldn't afford. What the hell? Where did I screw up? To have this house be who I am, I'm already struggling. Eventually, I'll be... I'll lose my job. I'll be in foreclosure. I'll have the shame of having horrible credit. I don't, I don't want my kid to see that. The next time I talk to Karen, she and her son have moved. She's renting out her house in Las Vegas to someone, and she's living in a place less than half its size in Pennsylvania, where she grew up. So would anyone like to share why at this point in your life, why are you buying a house? Why do you want to become a homeowner? Kids. Kids? Kids. There's still another group of folks who live in Foreclosure City. In basement is to have something in the future for your family. The ones who never owned a home or had a mortgage in the first place. But now, since real estate is so cheap, it's a perfect time for them to buy. Right now it seems to be cheaper to buy than to rent. Which is why it's so hard to get a seat at this first-time homebuyers workshop. It's sponsored by the same nonprofit that counsels people facing foreclosure. Jody Mobley is the teacher. You guys going in, you're going to know better. What you're learning today, you're going to take it with you, and you're not going to make the same mistakes that those people that are at risk right now mistakes they made. At the lunch break, one of the students, Norma Thompson, says she was tempted to buy a house a few years ago, but she's a customer service operator at a pharmaceutical company, and with her salary, she didn't think she could afford it. Now that prices have dropped so much, she thinks she can. Yes, it's scary, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. I've been renting all my life. I want something of my own now. The same here. Bernice Ellis is a retired secretary. Right now we rent a house and what you're paying for the house, you might as well pay something and at least have it yourself. I, I'm 38. I haven't bought me a house, never. Frankie Rodriguez is a bouncer at a nightclub. He's here with his sister. He says they have friends who've recently lost their homes, but he has a plan to avoid that. you you got to have discipline and you got to be focused on your goals. You know, I mean, this is my opinion on, on people, why people do lose their houses. People like to live out of their means. You can't have more wet taste on a beer budget. You know what I mean? That's pretty much the answer I get from everyone. They say, I know better. It will work out for me. It's a risk I'm willing to take. This is a story about Foreclosure City. But it's also a story about Las Vegas. So, of course, at some point, we needed to stop at a casino. We waited till the end. Jim Beltran, the shuttle bus driver, and his wife, Ruth Marie, like to do a little gambling, even though money is tight for them. Jim likes to bet on the ponies. You, you try to look for a horse that improves. This is a question mark. He's never run. 
It would be too glib to say that the gambling economy that fuels this city somehow fueled its residents' house-buying habits, too. But there are parallels between what happens in Las Vegas casinos and what happened in Las Vegas and a lot of America during the housing bubble. Any investment carries risk, even one that seems as secure as an investment in a house that you can afford. Buying a house is supposed to be a prudent, adult thing to do. It's a big part of the American dream. But, like gambling, there's always a risk. There are calculated risks and foolish ones. It's just that it can be hard to know the difference until you win or lose. Come on, two. Jim puts $30 on horse number two. Yeah. My horse is out of it. He got hit by the other horse. It comes in last. Oh, well. And Jim decides he won't bet on anything else for the night. That's it. That's how the money went. (laughs) 30 bucks, which I shouldn't have done, but I did. That's my limit. All I'll be doing now is chasing bad money. As for the bet they placed on their house, Jim and his wife still don't know what will come of that one. The last time I spoke to Jim, his mortgage company had lost the paperwork he'd submitted for a loan modification. He's had to start the process all over again. In March, the Beltran's interest rate jumped up, and they're finally talking about giving up the house, letting it go into foreclosure. They might move into a rental. But before their credit is ruined, they hope they can find a way to buy a new house. If Jim and Ruth Marie do buy a new house, they may be able to find an incredible deal. Because of the foreclosure crisis, there are cheap houses all over Las Vegas now. They're attracting investors and first-time home buyers like the people who looked at the house in Karen Lewis's neighborhood. In fact, some economists worry that such bargain hunting could fuel another housing bubble. So we're still facing that same equation, the need to balance risk and prudence. It'll be good for the economy if consumers regain some confidence, but not too much confidence. If we take some risks again, but not too many risks. If we want the good life, but not so fast that we bet it all and lose it. This town Foreclosure City was produced by Chrissy Clark and edited by Catherine Winter. The American Radio Works team includes Kate Moose, Mark Sanchez, Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalin, Chris Farrell, Suzanne Pico, and Craig Thorson. I'm Stephen Smith. To see photographs of the scene in Las Vegas before and after the wave of foreclosures, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can listen to this program again and sign up for our newsletter and our podcast. We also have a collection of other documentaries about this economic crisis that might interest you. So go to AmericanRadioWorks.org. Foreclosure City is supported by the Northwest Area Foundation Fund of the Minneapolis Foundation. Riot town for a riot town like this. American Public Media.